Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. Here's our big idea this morning. We can consider others first because Christ considered us. We can give preference to other people because Christ first considered us. And we're going to see this in two different phases uh, this morning as we kind of walk through our text. In verses 1 through 4, a church is to be others-minded. That we as Christians, as we are made new in the gospel, we should be looking toward the needs of others. And Paul will kind of unpack that idea a little bit in verses 1 through 4, and then seamlessly transition into verses 5 through 11, where he's going to talk about our God is an others-minded God. Our God is one who actually is considerate, if we could use that word, in a theological sense. And so this morning, we want to unpack this idea about a Christ who came and took on our flesh and took on death for us as a lens by which we see the issue of self. How do I relate to myself? How do I uh, understand myself in relation to others? Really, that's what Paul is inviting us to here this morning. So I want to draw our attention to chapter 2 of the book of Philippians. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, we're going to see the first point. A church is to be others-minded. Look with me at Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. See, Paul starts off and he emphasizes the believer's benefit. In verses, verse 1, he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. And Paul is saying that there might be encouragement, comfort, and participation in Christ that's common to all of us. He's saying that because these things are true, the Christian should press in to some attitudes and behaviors that he's going to list for us in verses 2 through 4. But notice this, how he describes this in verse 1, these kind of benefits of salvation. He kind of gets Trinitarian on us if we're, if we're not uh, paying attention. He's saying there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love we would seem from the Father, any uh, participation in the Spirit. In fact, it kind of mirrors a passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 where Paul says the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. He has this kind of Trinitarian understanding that he's bringing before us. And it kind of concludes with this uh, overwhelming, any affection and sympathy, it overflows in the heart of Paul saying this salvation is so precious and so rich, it should bring about affection and sympathy for others. Again, Paul is appealing to this commonly held salvation experience. 
And he does that so that he might kind of push us toward a a behavior, an action point in verses 2 through 4. Look what he says. He says that Paul calls us uh, to a like-mindedness, right? That's what he says at the beginning of verse 2, complete my joy being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Paul calls us to a like-mindedness that squelches selfishness. Notice here in these verses that he uses that word mind twice. Uh, He's uh, calling us, right, to be of the same mind at the beginning of verse 2, and then uh, in full accord and of one mind. He's really kind of pushing toward this idea, not just of thinking the same things, but having a unity of how we approach our life, a, a unity of the way we think and act because of this. Paul's already uh, talked to us about unity. We remember that back in chapter 1, verse 27. Paul said, we stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith. Uh, he started in verse 1 kind of bringing out our common inheritance and in, 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 uh, the salvation experience in Christ. And now he explicitly says that we should have the same mind as one another. He's going to unpack this more in verses 3 and 4. Look at verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We might take a a closer look at what these terms are in verse 3. What's selfish ambition or conceit? Well, selfish ambition is this idea of, of factions or strife. It's the idea that um, it comes from a word that, that means to provoke. Uh, this, that is, when, when you have a desire and demand that others share your desire. I remember when I was in high school, I was a, a real music fan. And I had this notion that everybody should like the exact music that I liked. And if they didn't like the music I liked, they were, something was seriously wrong with them, Right. And so I was this music snob kind of walking around uh, assessing other people's intelligence based upon the music that they liked until I met my wife, who's much smarter than me and liked different music, right? See, we, we recognize that we have certain held notions about how life should be and how life should work, and we impose those on other people, especially when those things are outside of the authority of the Scriptures, And we want to impose our preferences on someone else. And we have no uh, right or authority to be able to do so. So we have this selfish ambition that kind of raises up this sense of factions, and it's provoking others. It's provoking us. The second word there is conceit. It might be translated vainglory or self-conceit. In fact, it's a synonym, synonym might be self-esteem. Now, that, load, that term comes loaded with all kinds of preconceived notions. But what we're talking about is someone who, who views highly or overly highly of themselves or too highly of themselves. See, if selfish ambition was worried about my agenda, conceit is sure that I'm just better than you. I'm more valuable than you. And Paul is telling us to avoid these two things because they are specifically community killers. Paul pushes these two terms onto the table that kill the one-mindedness of the body of Christ. A pursuit of selfish desires fractures our community. When we're so devoted to what we think and we think ourselves better than others around us, it will kill our community. 
See, instead, Paul gives us an alternative. So if we want to define what he's talking about here in verse 3, we should actually look at the alternative that he sets forth. He says, consider others more significant than yourselves. Now, think about this for a second. Paul's not saying just to be a generally nice person. He's not saying to just be kind. He's not saying to just be a a, a lovable, fun-loving kind of individual. Paul is legitimately saying that we should think of other people as better than us, as more significant than ourselves. Paul tells us that we should esteem other people more highly than me. For the sake of God's kingdom work, for the sake of the unity of the church, to give preference to other people, to see them as more valuable than I am. He expands on this in verse 4. Look, let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And now notice it's not saying you should uh, just ignore your interests. You shouldn't just ignore the things that you need. You you should recognize you have needs and that you function best when those needs are met. But it's saying that you should actually consider the needs of others around you, the, the interests of others around you. That part of esteeming others more important than yourselves is actually to look around you for what other people desire, what other people are needing and wanting. I remember I was in a counseling session a number of years ago and I was working directly with this husband, and I was asking him about Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And he said, how do you feel like right now that you are giving yourself up for your wife? How are you giving up your desires? And his eyes kind of lit up, and he, he said, I've got an answer for that one, <laughs> right? I, I have an answer that doesn't embarrass me. But he spoke up, and he said, I've been working overtime, so that I could buy a really nice purse for my wife. And I said, hey, you know, that's a great thing. But what Paul is specifically talking about in that verse is that you would self-sacrifice for the spiritual betterment of your wife, that you could lead her to more Christ-likeness. In fact, that's what he goes on to say in 526, so that he might present to himself the, the bride without spot or blemish or any such thing. See, what we talk about here is not just uh, giving of ourselves to any want and desire of those around us. It's actually kind of predicated upon this idea of pursuing and loving Jesus more. We should note the needs of those around us so that we can promote a Christ-likeness in them, so that we can see Jesus formed in the lives of those brothers and sisters that we fellowship with. This is so hard for us, isn't it? So hard for us to think this way. See, we are self-interested by nature. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3, our self-interest stems from our rebellion against a righteous and holy God. Adam and Eve, you know, have this, this story in Genesis 3 where they rebelled. And this specifically, they rebelled against God's command because Satan had tempted them in this way. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, but God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What's the temptation that Satan sets in front of Adam and Eve? It's vainglory. Selfish ambition. You can be like God. You can be self-sufficient. You can be 
more important. We must call selfishness what it really is. It's our desire to be God. I heard someone say recently that the only difference between you and God is that God never desired to be like you. See, our selfishness is a desire to usurp God and to seat ourselves upon His throne, to determine our own right and wrong, to redefine our own reality, to dictate the course of our lives. Does this sound familiar? We're naturally motivated by selfish ambition and conceit. This is why this statement from Paul feels so strange to us. You and I, if you're my age, I'm, I'm 41. We were raised in the, the self-esteem movement. And self-esteem's forgivable, unforgivable sin is to say that you hold less value than someone else. We grew up with everyone getting a participation trophy where gold stars were passed out like candy, I guess. And candy was passed out too, I guess. But always affirming the value of the self. What we have in the gospel isn't a devaluing of self, but a reorientation to the value of others. A reorientation to say, Christ loves that person. I should love that person too. So what we've established here in verses 1 through 4 is the what. Paul tells us in verse 3 to be of the same mind. And so that's the what of this passage, right? You need, you need to be considerate of other people around you. You need to uh, consider the needs of, of others around you and, and kind of orient yourself not just toward selfishness and, and conceit, but instead toward those around you. But in verses 5 through 11, he's going to unpack the how and the why. And I want to look specifically at the why in verses 5 through 11. See, we see that our God is an other, others-minded God in verses 5 through 11. And Jesse just read these verses to us. Look at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in human likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross therefore god has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that jesus christ is lord to the glory of god the father See, Jesus was an others-minded servant in verses 5 through 8. See, the structure of these verses lays out a clear division uh, in verses 6 through 8 with the word and, right? So at verse 8, we have this statement, and, and in verse 6, and in verse 8, we have this word form. And so Paul is giving us this kind of parallel statement that we should understand. Now, we, we see this in three different kind of uh, phases, and Owen's going to go ahead and bring up our, our table here for us. Uh, to kind of understand. There it is. All right. So there will be an initial reflection. In verse 6, he'll say, in the form of God. In verse 8, he'll say, being found in human form. And then there's a, a portrayal of Jesus' selfless action. 
in verse six or verse seven, he emptied himself. And then in verse eight, he humbled himself. And then a further description, being born in the likeness of men or by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, Paul's laying out for us some, some almost poetry here. Some people actually believe that this was an early hymn that the early church would sing. But probably Paul's just kind of bubbling over with this reflection on, on Jesus and who he is. And so he starts off and he says, Jesus had God's form. In verse 5, that's what he says, right? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. See, what, what Paul is saying here is that Jesus didn't hold on to his equality with God. Jesus emptied himself. See, essentially what Paul is saying is that he's giving or he's not uh, kind of demanding this equality with God, but he's taking on in the incarnation human form. He's actually subserviating himself to the lordship of his father. He didn't demand this equality. He actually kind of laid it down and became a servant. And so verse 7 tells us that he emptied himself. My wife was a Bible major at Cedarville University. She paid $80,000 for this degree, and she says the one thing she remembers from college is this idea, the kenosis passage, right, that Jesus emptied himself. So there you go, $80,000 richer you are, right? Talk about prosperity gospel right here. See, Jesus emptied himself. What does that mean? It means that he humbled himself, that he took on our flesh, He left no part of his nature or glory behind. Instead, he poured himself out in his entirety. He gave himself the fullness of himself to us in the incarnation, which we'll celebrate here in another month. So Jesus had God's form in verses 5 through 7. Jesus had man's form in verse 8. Look at what he says there in verse 8. And being found in human form. Jesus took on our form. That is, he was completely human. I love what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 4. He says that he's able to sympathize with us in our weakness, that he was tempted in every way as we are, yet was without sin, that Jesus knew what it was to be tired. He knew what it was to be groggy. He knew what it was to be sick. He knew what it was to, to, uh, to be experience anger. Jesus knew the fullness of our humanity and yet never sinned against his Father in the midst of all of that. See, there is no way in which you are human right now that Jesus doesn't understand in his experience. And so he can sympathize with us. He took on our flesh. He took on human form. And he humbled himself again, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, Jesus' obedience to his Father took him all the way to Calvary. If Jesus were to really truly assert himself, is he to assert himself before the Father and said, I'm just as much God as you are, the cross would have never happened. He had every right to claim this equality with God, but yet emptied himself all the same. The manner of his death expresses the extent of his humiliation. That's what he says there in verse 8, right? became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You and I might not recognize this, but crosses were for criminals. Crosses were made for shame. There were ways of punishing 
uh, criminals outside of crucifying them. But when you crucified someone, you wanted to put them to public shame. This is why they did it uh, by the roads into Jerusalem, so that everyone could see the shame and public humiliation that they were exposed to. See, Jesus took this cross in obedience to his Father, bearing our shame, bearing the Father's wrath. But if this were the end of the story, it wouldn't be complete, would it? Just a, a sovereign God who took on humiliation and humiliation and humiliation. See, the remainder of this is the Father's action. And in verses 9 through 11, we have a change in perspective. We've been talking about Jesus, and now we're going to talk about the Father. Look what he says in verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, if Jesus is an other-considering God, the Father is an other-exalting God. He's one who takes us from our low station and brings us to a high station and gives His own Son the glory fitting His name. See, the Father gave Jesus His name. And look at what He says there at the beginning of verse 9, therefore, because of all the things we just talked about in verses 6 through 8, Jesus deserves this coming bestowal of glory and honor. Jesus has a name given to him by God that is above every name. Now, God's all about renaming people, right? He takes Saul's and makes them Paul's. And yeah, there was another example that just flew right out of my mind. Jesus doesn't get a new name. What he gets is the glory of his original name. Jesus is given glory and honor. Jesus makes this really funny statement at the end of Matthew, Matthew 28, 19, or 28, 18, excuse me. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So after his crucifixion and after his resurrection, the Father's giving him the name above every name. He says he's got all authority on heaven and on earth given to him. It's the recognition that, that Jesus was granted something from the Father that he didn't have before. That he's there and he's fullness and his deity and God the Father is then bestowing something to him that is more honoring than what he had before. And at this name, Jesus' name, this name's going to bow knees. It's going to force tongues to confess. Isn't that what he says? So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Think about that. Every knee will bow. Aristotle to Napoleon, you name it, 
whether they're on the earth or under the earth or wherever they are, every single knee of the universe that's ever existed, every person will be brought to a recognition of the lordship of Jesus Christ because God has given him the name above every name. He's bestowed glory and honor upon him. Not only that, every tongue will confess. Every tongue will say the words, Jesus Christ is Lord. Think about society today, those that are most hardened, most uh, set against God's purpose and plan in this world. Their mouth will be forced open. Their tongues will form the words, Jesus Christ is Lord. And whether they do that out of a hardness of heart and are forced to, I don't know. But God will take every ounce of humanity and bring about the confession of his lordship for all eternity. See, what we see here is this dynamic. We see something happening here where Jesus submits and the Father exalts. Jesus is embracing the cross and the Father is giving him the crown. Jesus is embracing further and further humiliation. And his Father is giving him greater and greater honor and glory for all eternity. See, we in our humanity are stuck in this pattern of self-exaltation. I have this chart kind of up here. We are given to these patterns. Go ahead. We are given to these patterns of selfish ambition and conceit. We are constantly throwing ourselves out there, throwing our weight around, trying to get our agenda accomplished. Meanwhile, Jesus Christ is muting his, himself in faithfulness to his Father. He's emptying himself. He's humbling himself. And what happens, the result of this is the Father is glorifying him. You see that? What verses 1 through 4 are showing us is that our desire, our, our interaction, our, 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 our fundamental stance in life is to be self-asserting. But our Savior was self-denying. See, our problem is that we are given to a pervasive me-ism. There's nobody like a pastor to make up new words like me-ism. But you hear it, right? We're about me and our society will cheer you on in your meism. The self-help books will tell you to consider your needs before the needs of others. Uh, the common thought about career success is that you're the number one, that you've got to do what's best for you. Even our science textbooks show us a world that operates by the rule of only the strong survive. And we are naturally oriented to us, to me. But our God is big enough to be given to the betterment of others, to be considerate of our station, our lostness. Our Father is sovereign to love His people from before the foundations of the earth. He's capable of saving to the utmost. He's able to save, to bring honor and glory to His name. Our Savior, Jesus, was able to give Himself to the point of death. Paul wants us to consider this trajectory of Jesus, Savior who embraces humility and humility and humility in trust that someday his Father would exalt him. You know, it's really hard. It's really hard for us um, to be oriented toward 
the grace that God has given others. It's easier for us to have a long list of all of the infractions that they've brought against us, isn't it? It's easy for us to have a running list of all the ways that people have done us wrong. And I think to some degree, what Paul is calling us toward is to to not be given to to vain conceit and selfish ambition. And what that means is I should be more familiar with my own sinfulness than I am another's sinfulness. And I should be more familiar with God's grace in another than I am with God's grace in me. We should orient ourselves to understanding others as the Lord has worked in them and see myself as the worst of sinners and see them as a recipient of God's amazing, abundant grace. So we've talked about the why. The why is we have an others-oriented God. But we may have come through this passage and we may have missed the how. Because we can talk about this, we can talk about being oriented around the needs of others, about giving up selfish ambition and vain conceit, and we can talk about those things, and we can send you out of this auditorium and say, go do it, stop being selfish, just stop it. And the problem is, you'll go three or five minutes, and then you'll get in the car with your children, and everyone will be selfish, including the parents, right? How, how, How do we do this? If we're people whose nature is bound up in self, if our history runs back to Genesis 3, like we talked about, where Adam and Eve were tempted with this idea of being God, how do we put that aside? See, Paul's not only shown us the why, but he's shown us the how. Look at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours. In Christ Jesus. A few years back, it sunk in with me that God never commands something that He doesn't equip us to perform. He doesn't throw out these things that say, go ahead, try that, and then wait for us to fail. He actually equips us to do those things. So what we see in verse 5, I hope you caught it, is we have this mind among ourselves because... It's ours. It's ours in Christ Jesus. This Jesus who consistently humbled himself and emptied himself, that took on our flesh and became a servant, even to the point of his death, even death on a cross, took on our humiliation. This Jesus has given us his mind in the Spirit. And so when we live this resurrected life in faith, we have the mind of Christ. Isn't that what 1 Corinthians 2 says? That spiritual things are are not understood by the natural man, but thank God that we have the mind of Jesus. You and I have received this participation in Christ that allows us to put down our selfish desires, to consider the needs of others around us like Christ did. That's the beauty of the gospel is it doesn't give these commandments that it never equips us to fulfill. Now we have the fullness of the Spirit that Jesus also received at his baptism. We have the resurrection with Jesus Christ that you and I can do this. We can live for an other's orientation because of Christ. How then do we consider others more important than we are, our sin-soaked, dirty, rotten, no-good sinners that we fellowship with? How do we give them preference? 
Because we go back to the cross and we recognize that God gave me preference, that he laid down his life, that he gave of himself even to the point of death. And you and I can pick up that mantle in Christ and consider others more important than us. Isn't that the beauty of the gospel? You're not stuck in you anymore. You're not stuck in your own selfish desires in that treadmill where you were just consistently doing all the same things over and over and over again. You are given to Christ so that now you can put on selflessness like Jesus. See, we have the mind of one who didn't claim his equality of God. We have the mind of one who became obedient to the point of death. We have the mind of Jesus who died on a cross. In fact, it's by that cross that you and I are fundamentally changed. See, this morning, we talk about this because it's, this is the lab, right? We're putting this into practice day in and day out as the body of Christ. We're bearing with other people. We're giving them preference. We're considering them more important than ourselves. See, what I think this passage is getting at this morning is that uh, our selfishness is a relational cul-de-sac. It's just a dead end. When we're given to ourselves, to our own desires and what we want, and we see just relationships with others as transactional of what they can give me and perhaps what I might have to give them, the community of the body withers and dies. Selfishness kills community. When we're oriented around what we want and what we need and what we have to have, I'm telling you, it just, we die on the vine. Try it sometime. Go into your small group and just consider the things that you want to get out of the small group. Say, I want community. I want to talk about, uh, confess appropriately. I want to do this. I want to do me. And, And take up the first 20 minutes of the prayer time and soak it up. Do that for a couple of weeks and see how people respond to you. When we have these notions of, uh, of ourself and, and we want to just talk about us and me and we and all of this stuff that's going on with us, we, we deny ourselves the opportunity to be seeing the grace of God in other people. On the other hand, it's Christ-like servants that grease the relational wheels of God's church. When we put on Christ-likeness, when we look toward the interests of others, when we put away selfish ambition and vain conceit, that actually causes a community to grow. We talk a little bit about starting a gospel culture as a church. I think what that means is it actually just means that we actually consider the gospel (laughs) in our relationships. It means that we actually recognize with humility that I'm a sinner saved by grace, speaking to another sinner saved by grace, and inviting them to the goodness and glory of Christ. 
And hopefully they invite me to the goodness and glory of Christ. And we have this kind of reciprocity that happens. We have this kind of give and take where some small group, I show up on a Friday night. By the way, our community group meets on Friday nights. If you want to come, you should. But regardless, we meet on Friday nights. And if I show up with just a needs orientation, a me orientation, I, I killed the sense of community and othersness that we have in our group. But if I show up with an attitude to say, I want to give, I want to reflect with them on the Scriptures. And there might be one week where I am encouraged in the Gospel, and there might be another week where I am encouraging. Right? I'll say that that works across the body. I know you guys think I'm pretty great. Um, I get that, you know, speaking of selfish ambition and vain conceit, right? But one thing we need to put to death as a culture and potentially even in this church is an elevation of pastors or elders over and above the body of Christ. All we have is a different calling and there's different giftings that God has given us. And I, I need the expression of your gifting just as much as you need the expression of my gifting. And God has given us a, a kind of interdependence in the body of Christ that calls for me to, with humility, recognize that God has gifted me in a certain sense, but he's also gifted you in a certain sense, that I need your gifting and you need my gifting. And sometimes we miss out on that, right? We think of this as a, a transactional kind of thing. I sit in the pew and I write the check every month and, and Jason comes and gives the sermon. That's not what the body of Christ was meant to be. The body of Christ was meant to be this give and take amongst all of God's people. See, as we reorient ourselves to a gospel that, that shows us a Christ who humiliated himself, humiliated himself, and humiliated himself, and then was exalted by his Father, you and I might also take on those places where we uh, humble ourselves, and we humble ourselves, and our humble ourselves, but eventually we might have, be in that place where we give others honor, where we recognize the grace and mercy of God given to somebody else where we complete the process, where it's not just self-humiliation after self-humiliation, it's a Christ-centered honoring of other individuals. See, our, our community mirrors our gospel. And if our community is broken, there's probably something wrong with our expression of the gospel. There's probably something wrong with our understanding of God's goodness to us in Christ that Jesus came and died and paid for sin and was resurrected to show he had power over sin and death. That should affect the way we relate to one another. It's not just fire insurance. It's not just this thing that we kind of put in our back pocket and say, I've got the death of Jesus, I'm good. This reorients every facet of our life. kind of recognizing this morning that that clock is dead it itself needs resurrection so i don't know what time it is but i'm going to pray but before i pray i wonder if we might just take a minute we might just sit in silence and we might just let this word kind of sink in with our hearts and our minds sometimes it's good for us to be quiet sometimes it's good for us to just be silent before the lord and consider what he has for us.
I'll give a minute, and then I'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before You in humility. We recognize there's nothing glorious about us, about me. Lord, You take broken sinners and You bring redemption You bring renewal. You bring resurrection. So Lord, we ask now that in keeping with that resurrection, you might allow us to consider the needs of others before ourselves. You might allow us to have the mind of Christ so that we could put aside our selfishness, our selfish ambition, our vain conceit, that we would share a common mind and unity, that we would give preference to others, consider others more important than we are. Lord, help us to be so keyed in with you that we see how you value those around us, how you might use them for your kingdom how you might establish a greater trust in Christ. Help us to be those who remind one another of the gospel, of your goodness to us in Christ, that you've paid for sin in its full. That you no longer condemn us. So Lord, we thank you for these things. Press them upon our hearts and minds. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.